there is a plan in place that will make the world better, significantly better for everybody on it. So I would encourage everybody around the world to look up that plan, look up globalgoals.org, spend some time with the goals, have a real think about what it is you could do to, to make a difference. Never believe you can't make a difference because everybody can make some sort of positive impact on the people in the world around them and love each other just a little bit more. In September 2015, 193 world leaders agreed to 17 global goals for sustainable development. Bum, bum, bum. If these goals are completed, it would mean an end to extreme poverty, inequality and climate change by 2030. Ta-da! Furthermore, if these goals are completed, there's a good chance today's guests will be able to look back in her life and say, I helped make that happen. Uh-huh. Soundbite? Let's hope so. Sure. <laughs> when you think of your mission being too tough to achieve or too pie in the sky, we want you to come back to listen to this episode as a true inspiration for Gail's goal, um, which was to reach 7 billion people in seven days. Woo! For the record, there are 7.6 billion people on Earth. Some guests build household brands you'll have heard of in this series, and some guests can call Barack Obama, Jennifer Lopez, Stephen Hawking, David Beckham, Bill Gates, Meryl Streep, and even get the Spice Girls back together. That is Gail Galley. A lady so convincing she can get Google to agree a takeover of their homepage. So whilst Gail doesn't quite follow the typical entrepreneur path creating that consumer brand you know and love, her CV is enough to make you feel sick with envy or perhaps warm with admiration. It really depends what type of person you are. For a snapshot, our guest today started at Oxford, joined the BBC where she launched CBBS and BBC Three, tongue twister indeed, before running Radio One's marketing department where she had an especially fun period of her life, as I understand it, non-stop raving and misbehaving, to quote Annie Mack. How dare you? She was then appointed as the CEO of ad agency Fallon before quitting that to become business partners with legendary British movie legend and founder of comic relief Richard Curtis of Four Weddings Love Actually and Notting Hill fame. There really isn't even time to discuss the fact that she helped Tony Blair to get into power by running his ad campaign, nor the fact she was CEO for the Jamie Oliver Foundation, because sadly when a guest has achieved this much, we have to try and focus where we can. So... You're about to hear from one of the coolest and more inspirational people we've had the pleasure to meet in our journey. So before we make her blush too much, let's get cracking. Hi, Gail. Hello. You took your hat off. (laughs) I did take my hat off. It's radio. It's a good hat for radio. Ah, okay. So it was just for the photo. Very good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being part of it. It's actually quite sweaty under here. Good. What, under sweaty this, box. Yeah. It's a classic sweaty box. Not a fan. You are wearing lots of layers, so... <laughs> I'm wearing Finisterra, but yeah. um, <laughs> I'm warming up. Okay, so uh, before we get into the interesting stuff, it's like which the archers. is... I always want to be in the archers. you... I've never listened to the archers. Is that what they do? Yeah, that's what they do. No, there's famous it. making amusing things for yeah. sound bites. Like, this would be a car opening. <laughs> uh, okay, got you. So welcome to our guest, Gail Galley, and we are going to do a quick fire round to get her all warmed up. So cracking straight into it, Radio 1 or BBC 3? Radio 1. Tony Blair or Jamie Oliver? Tony Blair. It's harsh. Barack Obama or Jennifer Lopez? <gasps> really hard. Uh, Barack, I think. Oh, I thought you loved Jennifer Lopez. I do love Jennifer Lopez. Most meaningful global goal to you that resonates the most and why? I'm guessing ocean. Life below water, because mm. I think it's, it's, it's the source of, from which all life springs person you look up to the most in the world richard curtis right now favorite app on your phone right now <laughs> 30 day squat challenge <laughs> <laughs> it is january yeah how many days in a year don't knock until you try it how many days in nine very good i mean it's not the 9th of january but it's whatever 11th, but... uh last book you read oh the bone clocks by david mitchell really frightening uh, vision of the future if we don't 
um, we sorted out. Okay, great recommendation, thank you. Top trumps or poker? You know why I'm asking you this one. Poker's more fun. <laughs> but top trumps, top trumps have been like, made for the we UN. We have just made a set of UN sustainable development goals. If anybody wants any, get in touch because we've got a warehouse full of them. So yeah, if anyone wants to play top trumps, which is a very odd experience on the global goals where you've got poverty and it beats hunger, <laughs> it's a very uh, very uncomfortable but I mean, very real hours, game to play. Hours of fun. Um, before you became a campaigning hero for the world and uh, making all of our lives better and futures better. Just to make these kind of career goals more attainable to many of our listeners, how did you actually start off? Were you always interested in saving the world? No, definitely not. I was interested in saving myself. Are you um, interested in saving the world now? Yes, Nick. Good. Now, All right, you're authentic. Now I'm, now I'm interested. <laughs> but um, no, when I went, I went to university, and um, we were in the last era where you actually got given some money by the by the government, let alone free fees um but that ran out i think it was my i was linguist so i had a year abroad in my third year busted loads of cash and um came back to find the grants had been taken away from us so i was fucked for cash in in um i mustn't swear so then my mum can listen to it don't put swearing in it that's gonna be really difficult no come on that's unrealistic so in my fourth year i found myself extremely broke um and by the end of that year i absolutely had to get a, a job that was going to pay some money i was also completely determined to go to london i'd grown up in newcastle and i'd only ever wanted to live in London um, and at that time they still maybe they still do this thing called the milk round where there are certain yeah. industries yeah. go and fish from yeah. for different universities but and I really wanted I'd wanted since I was little to read the news I really wanted to be um, Anna Ford and I looked a bit I still look a little bit like her um, but they weren't recruiting so then I tried I thought telly would be fine they weren't recruiting the only thing that was recruiting were lawyers and uh, the city both of which I'd be absolutely dreadful at the irony of me being on some sort of en- entrepreneurial uh, leadership programme is, is not lost on me I'm shit at making money really terrible uh, never made a penny but um they were recruiting for advertising and I thought well that's quite close to telly because adverts go on telly um, so I did the milk ground got a few interviews got a couple of jobs took one and I think I think what the thread has always been about communicating so it's not that I wanted to save the world at that point but I clearly like a chat and I wanted to uh, communicate and I had a, a riot absolutely loved being in advertising but it culminated in Tony and the political campaign and that's what switched me to something more purposeful and uh, you went to Oxford. We don't really seem the Oxbridge type. Do you believe in there being an Oxbridge type? What were people like around you? Oh, it was a, it was a real shock. Yeah, there, there is, there definitely is an Oxbridge stereotype. I don't know if it's actually true. Um, in, in that era, again, of significance was that Oxford you could get into on two E's still at that point, as long as you had the right connections and did a good interview. Cambridge has always been the, the swatty one that you had to get 85 A stars at. Um, so the types at Oxford, you've got quite a lot of extremely networked people who all come from the same schools, who all knew each other. It was terrifying to arrive at. You know, from My memory is that my dad drove me down from Newcastle and and uh, didn't even come in because I think looking back on it, it was just so daunting for him. I didn't have proper luggage. I had sort of my crap in plastic bags. And I remember him driving away and me just look, literally looking at this enormous kind of Balliol College thinking like, oh my God, I've got no idea what to do. And I'd also been sent there to do French and Italian because um, at the interview they'd thought I was cute, I think, and, and unusually um, common. And um, and so they, but they'd never placed a French and English, which is what I wanted to do. Um, so they gave me a place of French and Italian despite the fact that I kept telling them I didn't speak Italian. They, they seemed to brush that over with that kind of Oxbridge Did confidence. Did you speak Italian by the end? Yeah. 
Can you still speak Italian? Yeah. And French? Better, yeah. Anything else? I can get by in German and Spanish. Uh, so, yeah, so the Oxbridge type, I would say that is super confident, networked. Now, I don't know if that's still true, but when I got there, it was overwhelming. Everyone seemed to have been to St Paul's or Westminster, and it was, yeah, it was really overwhelming. Mm. But I met, I met my, I've only had two boyfriends, so I like to keep it really easy. And the first one I met pretty much in the first term, and he was much more Oxbridge type, and he kind of, I felt like he protected me and helped me kind of get my head around what I was doing. So what was your motivation to go work in the BBC other than Anna Ford? She was maybe your inspiration, but beyond that, was that, you know, the career you wanted? What, what was the thing? Well, so as I said, I was in advertising and culminated in uh, working on the Things Can Only Get Better political campaign. And like they do in advertising, when you've had a hit, they then start throwing it whatever you want at you. And at that time, I remember it was um, running the VW campaign. And I remember thinking, like, I literally couldn't give less of a shit about cars. I didn't understand them. I don't have one. I'd cycle. Is that all? And, and But I had been tickled by the relationship with the media that I'd learned through politics. Because what when you're doing a political campaign, what you realise is everything in advertising, you know, bought spots and f- f- ads, long-form video things, pointless, all about the headlines, all about that immediate kind of tricking journalists into writing a, he- a quick headline. And I just really enjoyed that um, the power of um, influence that you could have if you can work with the media. That coincided with the fact that I really loved music. Um, so I wrote, I, I sound about 85 in this interview, you had a grant and I wrote no, you've already said that you've got a mother so you couldn't be 85 so fine. <laughs> I wrote a um a letter a hand wrote a letter to the head of Radio 1 saying I, I, this is my background um I really love music I'd really like to come and I mean I was intending to be like a studio runner or anything and just piece of luck at that point the head of marketing had just been promoted to go and work for the rest of radio and the BBC did that brilliant thing a bit like Oxford had done to me which is oh she seems to have had a career in advertising that's quite like marketing is it yes that's absolutely really fine um, and so I, I bowled up with really zero relevant experience but um, that's how I landed at Radio 1. Do you recommend the BBC as a place to work? Massively. I mean, it's. Has, I'm sure it's changed since when I was there. The, uh, towards the end of my time there, so I was there for about nine years. Um, this thing came in called the Freedom of Information Act, which everyone is now very familiar with. But at the time, um, when when I was there for the majority of it, it wasn't there. So, I'm, and I'm not saying that was great because we could be really secretive and fraudulent. It was great because it gave the BBC the confidence to be bold and independent and investigative and all the things that the BBC should be and is famous for and is unique in the world for. I'm a huge believer in in the public service broadcasting model. Um, and and everybody you meet when you go around the world, and obviously I'm much more international now than I was then, you realise quite what a privilege it is that we have this incredible thing and, and what a um, that we mess with it at our peril. And, and when I was there, I think it was in one of its... It's always in the cycle of political stability, not, you know, depending on who's in government and, and how close it is to its licence-free negotiation. And I think I had five golden years where the licence-free was secure, FOA wasn't there, and it was a really bold, pioneering place to be. And as Radio 1, at the time that I was there and the job that I was doing with the controller was to reinvigorate a young audience and only we were doing that and so there was a freedom there was freedom within freedom and I now know doing most of our fundraising um, and having had much more commercial experience than I had then the freedom that is not worrying about where your money's coming from so we I obviously had to apply for a marketing budget each year and I had to get it signed off but there was always you going to be one mm. and then once you spent it your metrics of things like uh, approval ratings or kind of I mean literally Groovathon ratings you know like was that cool did we break a new band 
So a real privilege. So yeah, and and then as an organisation, would I uh, recommend it? Yeah, I really would. It is apart from that culture that was so uh, inspiring to work in. It also was packed with really funny, quirky, intelligent expert people the likes of which is difficult to find under one roof mm. you know and it was yeah it was a real I, I still have many good friends who were there then and a lot of my friends that I had anyway have done stints there and I still have good friends there it's a really wonderful organisation unfortunately the comedy W1A is also incredibly accurate I mean bleedingly accurate I've been in some of those meetings that they're recreating the one about how I didn't know we had seven orchestras I've literally been That's in that painful. meeting and it's so accurate you know yeah. it's like someone has bugged the last 10 years of the corporation but obviously it, it ratchets up. It doesn't show it doing anything good. And that's mm. the, so all of that exists in, in daily life there. But you get these enormous highs of what can you, you can Can you, for anyone that hasn't actually watched W1A, can you share any stories that are imprinted in your mind of meetings like that, of that ilk? Well, there was the, we, we, when I was on the radio kind of broader board and, and there were always cutbacks. I mean, the BBC is always having to look at its budget like, like anything in the last sort of 20 years. And there was a, a time when um, we were looking at do you cut live events do you cut orchestras do you cut you know training and development and you'd have these amazingly tribal kind of meetings where people would be sitting quietly waiting for the moment to go you can't take that away <laughs> and uh, and then the <laughs> that meeting where in w1a where they go we have an orchestra for community i remember someone saying we have a welsh orchestra <laughs> and then somebody go don't do that touch it i mean it was just very funny very fun for very very accurate so there's a lot of people like stuck in their ways and very protective of change, would you say? I think there were like when I was there because it hadn't had that sort of exocet missile of cuts and change. And and remember, I was there right before I left and then there are these enormous scandals. So the Jimmy Savile scandal... Mm-hmm. What was the thing about someone? They recut the footage of the Queen walking because they wanted it to look more dramatic, and these things exploded the confidence of the BBC. And 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 for you know, obviously it was very disturbing. I think for the for the organisation, but in some ways it shook up, especially the bad ones like the Savile scandal and other kind of inappropriate things that have happened since. Um, I think a lot of the dead wood was shaken out. But when I was there, yeah, of course, there were people we used to giggle about where Radio 1 producers go when they die. And it was like, it's Radio 2 evening. <laughs> and these people would rattle around the halls and you'd think, wow, are they still there? Mm-hmm. You know, people in their sort of 60s who've started as runners, you know, in the 60s. I mean, actually, just you know, fairly topical and obviously tell me to fuck off if you don't want to talk about it. But, you know, living in the world as we do right now of a Me Too campaign. Is there anything like that for you as a young woman starting a career in a big organisation like that? that In the media, do you know, I I clearly am not, I'm clearly in the minority, or I'm really but ugly, but I I never came across it. I never came across it at the BBC. I think it's more that no one would want to fuck with you. (laughs) Good use of the word with. I could edit that out. Well, I, just, I just imagine you turning around and just smacking someone in the face straight Well, up, I think so. I definitely may, may give up a bit of that. Because in advertising, as a young trainee, it was definitely there. Mm. And absolutely, that's how you behave. And that, that's the difficult thing with Me Too and that whole harassment thing, isn't it? Is that one person's ludicrous behaviour, because I would laugh at it, if that happened to hit someone who was, for whatever reason, feeling more vulnerable or insecure, 
it would feel very uh, threatening. So, mm. but the so the BBC, no, I didn't see it. There were definitely whiff, whiffy rumours around some of the older DJs when I was there, uh, like Radio One Roadshow tours and yeah. you know stuff like that. But in terms of management, absolutely not. I mean, it was an impeccably feminist organisation in my day. I mean, most of the women in the level above me, which is the director levels, were um, were women. Most of the people there were women. The only thing it hasn't had in my time was a female director general, which it should do now. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. And um, Politics, female DG. Yeah. Fat time. Annie Matt for president. <laughs> I don't think she's got too much history. <laughs> so um, just coming on to the last point on Radio 1, I know that you like a rave and I know did. that you like to did. I know that you did like a rave and I know that you did like to enjoy yourself. You still like to enjoy yourself? I love music. So and I love dancing. Talk to us about some of the fun fun shit that goes down at Radio One. Oh, where did it start? Come on. I, no, I think again this change of the freedom of information, the budget cuts meant we had a pretty gilded era and there was a situation basically where I had an amazing relationship with a controller who trusted me entirely and my head of music came live music music we had a great relationship all of us were a great team and respectful of what we didn't know so when uh, matt and i would go to the controller and say you've absolutely got to go to the miami dance conference andy i mean where are you this is crazy that radio one's not there he'd go okay so we'd get so we could just write your summer so we did miami we'd started um radio one in ibiza together which is obviously now a monumental thing my most fun i think that in terms of bending the rules was um I happen to be part of, I still am part of it, but a large set of friends uh, that come from this DJ crew called Sancho Panza. And um, we all wanted to go to Glastonbury. And getting tickets for Glastonbury free is always tricky. Um, 
it's impossible now, but it was even tricky then. And I needed to get something like 22 free tickets because oh, that was the size of our crew with their girlfriends and what have you. So Matt and I concocted this idea for Michael Levis that he could open the festival a night early and we could build this mammoth kind of dance stage called the Pyramid Stage. Not the Pyramid Stage, that's the main one. A mini pyramid. That's unbelievable. That'd be amazing. Knock, knock it together the night before. I think, I think the Druids invented the Pyramid Stage. I thought it'd be quite, but it was a mini pyramid, basically. And it was in the area between the other and the pyramid. And, and we persuaded him to open it uh, early only to get all my friends DJing and actually yeah. my personal highlight was my now husband who's then my boyfriend who I was really trying to impress I bought him some decks to, I mean, that would do to look cool well no it gets better so I bought him some decks mainly because I wanted to learn to DJ and I turned out to be far too impatient he then turned out to be quite naturally good but I put a long bill on that Thursday night which culminated in Sasha which for both of us at the time was one of our kind of ultimate heroes and I put James on first so <laughs> we have a flyer somewhere that goes James Galley Sasha so <laughs> So that's kind of I think that's the high point I think of that era I think convincing Michael Evers to get a whole group in by building a little stage or whatever that's you know, now one it's of the normal most right now the, fe- now the festival exactly and, and, yeah. and Rita he married me yeah exactly and I feel like you deserved it so that was a period of bending the rules and then rather strangely you left and became a CEO yeah, I did a little bit of uh, my own company in between. So I founded okay. a, a little consultancy with my, a great friend called Jim Godfrey, slightly around lifestyle and having children. And Jim's a great friend, very clever. He's in comms, but both rule benders, both really f- musical fans. And um, by now I'm talking musicals. So I do remember we had a lot of fun writing, uh, playing show tunes in my back garden whilst knocking off proposals that happened to earn us quite a lot of money. It was pre the, the sort of latest wave of financial crashes. So it was, it was an easy time. And in many ways, I look back at it and think, why on earth did I go and get a proper job again? But that the reason I did that was, uh, again, serendipity. My old client, no, I was his client at the BBC, my old agency, Fallon, who, um, the the, uh, the founder there, who's a great old friend, rung me up, I think from his, for the lounge in Heathrow, and said, do you fancy coming to be the CEO at Fallon? I think I'd just been in hospital, so I was quite sort of high on morphine. And I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd made, I think. Did you say CEO? Because I'd never been one, and it wasn't a path I was expecting to go down. He said, yeah, yeah, baby, it'll be absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'll, I'm back on Monday, let's talk then. So I went and see him on Monday and I had the job by Tuesday. And I hmm. kind of thought, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? I, I'll get that on my CV. I'll give running an agency a go. I didn't fancy going back into advertising is the absolute truth. Um, because I, even then I thought it's not purposeful enough for where I want to be. But I did think it's an opportunity. And, and actually, I really enjoyed it for the first couple of years. For, um, for people that don't know enough about advertising agencies, because, you know, it's a certain world, etc. Give us some idea other than the BBC, who are their clients? Like, what are the typical clients you well, see the, at Fallon? Fallon's big, big hits have been um, the Gorilla, the drumming Gorilla for Cadbury, and Sony Balls, so all the balls bouncing down San Francisco streets. Yeah, so they're exploding paint. Mm. So they were heavy hitters, but when I went to work there... The, all the original founders, which often happens when you get bought by a bigger group, so they've been bought by publicists, um, had walked out because they'd fallen out with the management and only Robert had stayed and he was going to take over the bigger machine that was Saatchi and Saatchi. So he needed someone that he knew and trusted to come in. And, uh, and I mean, really, it was, a, it was a mistake on his part, much as I love him for it, um, because I was absolutely dreadful at it, in truth. I mean, I was very cheerful. And the, the team there, about 120 people or so, were very, very broken and, and damaged by this sort of trauma of being bought and then the loved founders leaving. So I was really good at that bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I've always been decent at um, cheering people up. But in terms of the numbers, I mean, I was awful. I remember my first meeting with my FD and him showing me the, what should have been 
<laughs> third nature to to a CEO. I mean, literally looking and doing that kind of, woo, okay, that looks terrific. And then I'm going, no, but what are we going to do? Look, that's down on year on year and that's 25% looking. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's still looking really bad. Okay, <laughs> so I'm exaggerating, but it took me a while to get up to speed. Luckily, I was quite good at convincing people to come with us. And so I, I got myself out of basically basic incompetence by winning a huge piece of business from Nokia, which kind of quadrupled our revenue kind kind of thing. So it was great. And great, then great not, for them as well, sounds like. Yeah. The, and then and then they collapsed oh, massively right. before before <laughs> we even got going. Oh, right. So I'd got by then I understood how these things work and mm. I'd done a whole set of predictions based on a whole set of revenue that then didn't materialise and then it was rough. And then I realised like this is not for me. Mm. The the sort of grit that you need as a, an entrepreneur or any kind of CEO to get yourself out of proper dog do financially. I just don't care enough. You know, mm. I'm like, I don't mind if we shrink. And, you know, the holding company, like, we do. Uh, so, that's, so that was the point that Rob and I agreed. It was probably best if I didn't What do you prefer when you're looking back on what would you rather do again? Work at the BBC or Fallon? Is it basically... Oh, work at the BBC. Work yeah. at the BBC. Yeah, every day Do you want to do week. Skoda campaigns or get off I did your face Sk- with I did Skoda. Pete Tong? What's more fun? It's not, uh, Pete Tong doesn't get off his face. Um, no, I said you got off your face with Pete Tong. I didn't say anything about him. <laughs> it's no fun doing it on your own. Uh, and you should remember that, boys. It's less fun on your own yeah good good um, campaign was that, um, was that a Fallon one uh, it's much more uh, I'm fine I found the BBC a much more nurturing environment and by the end I wasn't it wasn't just fun times I was running marketing for BBC News BBC Online BBC Education BBC Sport mm. there was sort of nothing at one point I really and this is why I left there was I felt like there was nothing in the BBC that I didn't know was going on there's a brilliant phrase that comes up in the thick of it a lot in um, W1A a lot which is are you across that? and, and you have to say yes because if you don't say you're across it then you're clearly less a human being yeah yeah totally across that but I literally go home on a Friday and think I'm across everything I'm not doing anything you know, and, and that I, I'm, I was a learning that I love doing things like I love creating things building things my partner Richard always says to make stuff happen you have to make stuff and I've realised that I, I like that so this is a perfect segue. You just talked about Richard. So talk to us about how you met your now co-founders, Richard Curtis and Kate Garvey. So Kate is a really old friend of mine. She's one of my best friends. And we had no- so we've known each other for years. I met her because she was Tony Blair's diary manager when I first met her. And she became- she was con- a constant, very senior advisor to him throughout his career and still is a great friend of his. So, But we knew each other well. I had just finished that um, working for myself. No, I just finished working at Fallon. And she had just come back after having a second baby after leaving Freud. So she worked for Matthew Freud for a while after Tony. And we were sitting having one of those um, girl lunches, which involved, um, I'm sure, shabbily and um, probably smoking and sort of say, yeah, yeah, we're going to totally do something together. and It's going to be amazing. And we're never going to work for anyone crap. It's going to be amazing. Great. Ciao. Um, and then, I, as I understand it, she kind of left that lunch and walked into see a, a meeting at Google and um, bumped into Emma Freud, Richard's girlfriend, mother of his four children. And Emma said, oh, God, are you back? Richard really needs you. He's just had this crazy idea that he's gone to the UN with and he has no idea how to make it happen. And Kate uh, went to see him and then she said to him, well, actually, my friend Gail and I, who you don't know because I didn't know Richard, she'd worked with him before on uh, Make Poverty History. Uh, this could be something we could have a go at, shall we have a go? So the three of us met and had a huddle and um, the Ivy Club, I remember, that was very exciting. The Ivy Club. Okay, yeah. And we all seemed to get on and committed we'd do it. And so for about three months, we just threw it around between ourselves, tried to make some sort of plan. I mean, it's pretty pretty shambolic because there's not one of us is a kind of complete finishing kind of startup guru um then thank god we got a, another great old friend of ours in katie bradford who 
she was like, you haven't even got a bank account. She said, you, how, how much have you fundraised for this? And I'm like, oh, a million. She said, where's it going? I don't know yet. So she came and put some order and structure into it. And, and then it really took off. So where's the name Project Everyone come from? I mean, because, you know, I, in my mind, you've got someone like Richard Curtis. You've got someone like Gail Galley. I can imagine you sitting around talking about brand names for the first three months. God, no, we didn't do that at all. Uh, Rich, it was Richard's code name. He just thought this is the goals are for everyone. We want to reach. He had he knew at the beginning. I think he had this instinct that he wanted to reach everyone. The whole seven billion seven days we Kate, Kate and I worked on later. But so he was. It's like project, you know, microphone or project studio. It was just it was a code name, mm-hmm. and we. I kept thinking this is going to stick because this is what happens. And then by the time we were really up and underway, it seemed kind of crazy to change it. And because that was even before we'd named the goals at that time, the sustainable development goals were a policy document that was being made by the U. The global goals is what we called them. Mm. So it just stuck. But it was it came out of Richard's head. Okay. Most and great things do. What was the initial pitch? To the UN. Yeah, to, I mean in general, what what was Project Everyone from the start? Like how did you communicate it? Like yeah. We were we were always going to be a communications unit dedicated to the promotion of the sustainable development goals, and then in the end, we, we we've landed on we do three things. At launch, we just had to drive awareness of them, and now we have like a triple A model, which is awareness. Uh, Action drive, drive drive governments and businesses particularly to uh, take greater actions to achieve the goals, and then accountability. So you know, 193 countries signed up to these things. They have to be held accountable, and they have to know that they're going to be held accountable. So we won't hold them accountable. That'd be the UN's job, and hopefully the their people's job. Our job is to create the atmosphere that makes people realise realise there are goals, realise there are actions they have to take to achieve them, and then realise that they will be held accountable if they don't. What and this is maybe an unfair question to ask you because you're not holding anyone accountable, as you said, but what does accountability mean? As in, how how can the UN hold a country to account on something like that? So the UN is, uh, the goals aren't legally binding. So it's not like COP, where the Paris Agreement, which is a legally binding thing. And if you if you don't live up to it, you um, if you signed it and you don't fulfil it, you get fined. The, it's an agreement. But what the UN does do rather well is convene and have these moments, particularly notably the once a year, the UN General Assembly in September, where world leaders come. And in July every year, they have to come and report back on what they're doing to do the goals. So at, at its top level, a government has to stand up and show its plan for achieving those goals. You also then work with a network of... UN agencies that are uh, focused on different areas, so environmental, UN women, you know, etc. You also have the NGO community around them. So, and then you have, and that's global. And then you have national versions of all of that. So, if you had a country that was significantly backfiring on, say, gender equality, you'd probably get not just at a global level, the UN, but also at the national level, those NGOs. And then our job sometimes is to fan that with, you know, an activist here or a celebrity there to call upon the government to do better. So, you know, we didn't actually drive this. But if you noticed recently, Rihanna did quite a cool thing about education when the G7 was happening in Hamburg. She tweeted Merkel and said, um, how about education for girls? And she was sort of put up to that by one of the big female NGOs. So it's, it's just light pressure now, we're not Greenpeace like we would never and I'm not dissing their tactics but theirs is pretty strong armed accountability theirs is to turn up with a kind of mag- megaphone and say VW are sort of disgraceful diesel liars that's not our mode it's our mode is more to say there's a plan it's achievable mm. we've all got to get with a plan let's do more and the accountability from us is more fanning those moments of accountability so that you want to be part of them rather than a stick we're more carrot than stick okay when you start a startup company with the intention of growth, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 
You are forced to think how big it can get and you tell yourself a lie and a story, of course, to get yourself on that journey, which is motivating to both yourself and investors coming in. In your case, your first story was basically to reach 7 billion people, right, from day one. Yeah. Was that always the intention? For the launch week, it was a tactic. Yeah. It was a tactic to get, it was an engagement tactic. So how daunting is that mission? Well, we said it ourselves. So it's sort of less daunting than saying 3 billion in a funny way. Because what we, what we, um, I can't even remember how we came to it, but by then there were probably about four or five of us core who would brainstorm our way through it. And I think we sort of just ratted ourselves up one planning session, just said, you know, you know sod it, let's go the whole hog, let's go everyone. But what I found was, and I, and I'm, I am relentlessly on the road meeting people all the time, trying to uh, solicit support for the goals. It's so much easier to get someone to lean in to say, we're going to try and reach 7 billion people in seven days. Do you want to help? Because everyone goes, oh, that's fun. Mm. Whereas if you go, we're trying to convert 2 billion, you know, AB1 influencers in the Northern Hemisphere, they'll be like, good luck. And, you know, goodbye. So so it was a tactic. We knew we'd never reach 7 billion, especially for like no bank account and uh, absolutely zero infrastructure from a standing start. But we we thought we'll have a good crack. Um, But by saying it, it made it feel... Um, more enticing for people to get involved and then also I think it was a statement it was almost like a brand statement the goals are for everyone so we're going to get them to everyone Mm. Um, and in the end we got to three and a half billion we think I mean metrics are metrics right but we did we from that in that funny way you can coach that many that many mentions and that tv channel put it on so that definitely their their whole reach is this so obviously (laughs) that's fanned but it was big you know we we like stopped New York and we were on the global citizen stage and we did a tv show in every country and we got a flag raised in every country and there's loads of press coverage and quite a lot of social so still only hit three and a half the mere three and a half billion yeah I don't know how you sleep at night (laughs) disappointment just over 50 percent I guess no, that is 50%. That's terrible maths. Yeah. You're going to edit that out as well, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> Pathetic. Grumpy Rich is a bit thick. <laughs> Grumpy Rich is getting it's it all Oxford, wrong. Good Oxford, you know? Didn't yeah, Oxford. so true. You get a Cambridge. Yeah, You're barely the typical Oxbridge no. uh, type. Um, okay, what are the 17 sustainable development goals? So the, I got asked a really interesting question quite early doors. Richard and I were in New York with Paul Pullman, CEO of um, Unilever. And he said, look, I'm, I'm down, I'm supporting the goals. Obviously, he was part of the committee that drew them up. But he said, what you guys need to communicate is the goal of the goals. And we spent quite a, you know, a good piece of thinking time crunching them down because they're extreme. The point is that they cover everything. You know, they go from the old goals of the Millennium Development Goals of things like no poverty, no hunger, gender equality, full education, maternal mortality. But they also include things like clean energy, climate action, life below water, life on land, partnerships for the goals, peace and justice, innovation and infrastructure. Um, but uh, the goal of the goals, if you were to summarise it, is a world where um, we have eradicated extreme poverty. So that's the bottom billion, less than a dollar a day kind of poverty that kills you. We have made better inequalities. So you're never going to get rid of inequality and that is sort of unhealthy to even try, but at least reduced inequalities because as I was advocating for last night, um, a world where there's as much inequality as there is right now is not sustainable. And you've reversed the effect of climate change. So the, the goals kind of bucket into those three things, poverty, uh, 
inequality and climate change. And the thing about them is they are a holistic plan because I think, and this is what I find very satisfying about working with them, is any of those single issues, you have the unintended consequences of screwing up something else. So like a lot of people know about the whole, if you put a malaria net in and you haven't thought about what it's coated in, uh, people in some areas will end up using them as fishing nets because that's the most, they could afford to lose a couple of kids, they can't afford to lose their livelihood. And then you end up polluting the ocean because it was coated in something that, whereas actually if you are hitting all the goals all the time what you're doing that won't happen because there would there would be a thing in um one of the one of the climate goals that would have explained that that's not the right substance that coats a net i mean that's just one tiny example that the bigger ones are things like a world at two degrees so if the temperature goes up by two degrees most of the progress that's been made on malaria in the last 10 years gets wiped out because the mosquito just you know completely thrives and goes much more widely than it is now um and peace and justice you know like we have at the moment enormous migration problems which will create enormous problems down the line of, of uh, health and uh, lack of education and instability so the point about them is they're a really holistic system that work together achieving those three things mm. how does it make you feel when you, you're um you're, you're pushing into to try and achieve these things and your job is to to amplify that as much as possible and then you get you know the leader of the free world um come out with such bollocks um is there a way i can describe it that's my well, when it. i wake up that's in the morning right? yeah yeah and it's, of course it's a challenge but i wake up in the morning and think well i've got at least he's handsome <laughs> so uh, one of our partners on climate is this lady uh called christiana figueres extremely um powerful lady who negotiated the paris agreement uh, when she was the director of the unf triple c and I was talking to her when Trump got elected. I was in America when he got elected. Actually, it was very, that was definitely very depressing, very shocking, as it was for all the Americans. People were just crying. You know, I'd go into meetings with people the next day and they're just crying. Um, and I think they're still crying, probably. <laughs> and I said to her, like, oh, crap, that's bad, isn't it? And she said, look, she said, the point is direction of travel is set. The economy is moving that way. Renewables are clearly recognised now as the smarter thing to put your money into. We're moving. Uh, the public awareness is moving. Regulation is moving. Imagine it like a long freeway of cars. One car has hit the curb, but the direction of travel is set. And and so that's like worst case, I would say, is see it as a car that's gone off the rails. The best case, and I saw it happen on the ground in America that day, and it's absolutely happened since with the climate movement, with the women's movement, with the um, racial equality movement. It's galvanised what was perhaps complacency to realise that you cannot take anything for granted. You know, that he is, he's a as Richard says, Richard's so diplomatic, he's a special kind of president. And in special times, you have to take special measures. So if you are, if you do care about equality in America, now is the time to go on a march. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you care about the climate, Paris is great, a great agreement, but there's someone threatening to pull out, so get on the march again. So in a funny way, people have gone from being terrifically depressed about it to uh, quite electrified by it in a way that they, they wouldn't have been had Hillary been in power. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. Do you um, do you mind actually telling our listeners? I know because I've seen because we talked about it the actual campaign that you ran, but I feel like 
a lot of what we're talking about almost does a disservice to how awesome that campaign to reach 7 billion people in seven days really was. Can you take us through a whistle-stop tour of that campaign from start to finish, the highlights, so people really get just how cool it was? I can try. I mean, the best thing genuinely is to to go look at the website. Go look at projecteveryone.org. That's probably where the case studies are. And you 100% have to do it. It is so do it cool. now. It is <laughs> listening. Yeah, ignore <laughs> yeah. Unless you're driving, don't do it now. Yeah, and then you won't be able to watch the video. So do it later or pause. Yeah. Um, so wh- when we said we'll go for seven billion, we did a very very crude mapping exercise of seven billion people, and we tried to get down to as few large uh, channels to reach people as we possibly could. So we worked out. Um, you know, five and a half people, five and a half billion people regularly access a television set. So okay, we've got to do something in TV. My friend Benji B, the radio, the DJ, said um, he said radio babes, even the aliens get that. And I'm like, yep, absolutely right. So radio was a thing. So um, faith, like most of the world, organises itself by faith. Just us heathens that tend not to up here, but mainly. So faith had to be a thing. Education, obviously, kids are somewhere, and so on. So we mapped these channels out, and we ended up with uh, six or seven of them and then we just designed a something to go in each channel so the campaign was built like that as sort of channel blocks so we partnered up with Global Citizen and, and we through Richard we got um, Chris Martin and Beyonce to headline the, their festival that year in New York and she did the most sort of rocking set on Goal 5 I've ever seen and Chris's was great and it was a great show and we packaged that up and put that all over the world BBC Worldwide put that out for us so that was TV like that's um, it was a good show actually I don't know if you can still watch that but it was a really good hour and it was interlaced with things about the goals then Radio Everyone was what we created because me and my MD's um, radio background we just thought it was too cool not to so we ended up um, with 17 pieces of content one per goal um, in several different languages distributed through like thousands of radio stations we also did audio drops from kids um, and when I am 10 there will be no more poverty because the sustainable development goals are super cute um, so a Newcastle accent right? no I was trying to be sort of Latino 10 year old boy of yeah, which right. I have no knowledge so that's <laughs> A mistake. I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> but it's staying in. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's a very cute, the Radio Everyone audio, which I think probably is in the bowels of our site still somewhere. But also had like Bono doing an interview with Christiana Mamampour about Africa and really cool stuff. Um, so that's Radio Everyone. Uh, the World's Largest Lesson is a, a program that we created in partnership with UNICEF where it is what it is. It's a lesson about each of the goals. We had Sir Ken Robinson come and curate 2,000 teachers open source to Love make all him. the lesson plans. Yeah, he's a dude. He's, he's like a friend now and he's, he's, the, he's the patron of that lesson. Um, um, and now we refresh that every year. So we're, we're getting up to some huge numbers, like hundreds of millions of kids have, have managed to access that, And that goes on. So that's a program that we continue to do each year with a different theme. And now we're getting kids to take action and we're getting kids to see how they can connect with other parts of the world. And, and be accountable. And be accountable. And this year we did a, a food one. For, so they, we got kids to rate their plate. So you kind of go, how many, how much, is that healthy? Is it not healthy? What is that going to be like in a different country? What's the packaging on that? What are the food miles? And put it on a map. And then last year we did a, of all the people in your life, how many that are influential? How many are girls? How many are boys? We did a gender one. We did a map. So we're, we're getting some really nice visual manifestations of kids and the goals. The goals were sort of designed 
not with for kids because obviously it's a big political thing but all those colourful icons and the words we thought if kids can't say them then they're never going to grow up with that sense of, of the plan so that was the world's largest lesson we did a prayer for everyone we got the Pope to talk about it so we, we did a, this sort of we got the heads of all the major religions to write a common prayer that you know we respectfully gave out and hoped people did but we got really good feedback about how many people did that um, I always forget some uh, the media was a channel obviously the news and that was where we, we got a flag raised in Chengdu by a panda for clean energy we got a North Korean diplomat you can't see it on the radio but literally in the North Korean parliament he just sort of whipped out a flag for a second and then whipped it back <laughs> inevitably killed um, but uh, you know but just, just jazz and that got picked up and, and led the world and then we did this enormous projection uh, on the UN building one of those multi-dimensional things that went through each goal with like a land, scorched landscape and then like coming to life and being amazing you know women being oppressed women being amazing really cool cost of fortune I raised the money for it um and it was so good that the police said you can only do it once. And I was like, oh, my God. Because the plan was to do it every night that week of hunger. You could see it from the whole of Manhattan. It was going to be amazing. It was amazing once. Uh, but, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, um, and, and obviously we got lots of influencers like Malala and Emma Watson and Leo DiCaprio to get their, their goal board and just tweet. So the classic kind of awareness push. And that's how we think. When you aggregate all those numbers up, radio listeners, yeah. TV show, uh, and, 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 you get to... To about half the planet. You even had the Oxbridge type Stephen Hawking. That was really, yeah, we got Stephen Hawking. That's a really moving video, actually. That's, that's a good one to look Same at. Space. But a sweet little story about uh, Molly, who's in our team then, now off being clever and writing comedy. But she went on the shoot with him. He, he is in a separate place from his voice, which was is just f- fun to think about. But she went on the shoot with him, and like, so there she is with Professor Hawking, the most clever man in the world. And she was totally, I mean, as happens in our jobs, obviously we come across quite a lot of um, impressive people. You can get rabbit leg. We've all got our story. She, she was just Stephen Hawking and she kind of went up to him and did that with his shirt and went, it's a really nice shirt. <laughs> <laughs> just came back to the office. Oh God, I just, I was with like, you know, the biggest brain in the world and I said he had a nice shirt on. <laughs> so you mentioned rabbit leg. Who have you got rabbit leg in front of? Obama, Beckham... Beyonce. I didn't meet David. I didn't meet David. I made myself fall over to try and touch one of Beyonce's children. I mean, that wasn't rabbit leg. That was like really dreadful opportunism. A little bit rabbit leg. We one. I had to take Richard up to do the BBC Worldwide deal. Um, BBC Worldwide is run by a friend of mine. But um, we went up to this massive buyers conference they do in Liverpool, which is um, set in one of those enormous arenas. And it's where they like show the new Doctor Who and then Strictly Come Dancing will dance down the middle. And, you know, it's the kind of commercial side of selling formats and what have you. And it's about 2,000 buyers from all over the world in this arena, this show going on. And I agreed that I, we would get Chris Martin to come. He was in LA, couldn't come over, but he, he promised he'd do a live link up uh, into the screen, into the room, and I arrived with Richard, who's lovely. But you know, I, we, as we walked into this arena, I don't think any of us realised what it was going to be like. It was like a sort of the Super Bowl, and I, I got massive rabbit leg because I thought, oh my god, this is a live link up. It's Chris Martin, who's you know not unpleasant, and there's just so many things could go wrong. And I, I just couldn't. I just had to give the mic over to Richard because we were supposed to like cue him in and have a dialogue. I was like, <laughs> can't speak. <laughs> So those are two funny stories, but what is the funniest story you can remember from working on Project Everyone? Oh, there's so many. Are there any completely ridiculous slapstick moments? 
I mean, not that of fun. That's, that's quite a bad one. When we nearly got sued by Lionsgate last last summer. Oh, let's we, tell that one. That sounds great. <laughs> we made a. So we we normally make a big uh, cinema film each year around one of the themes. So in the launch year, it was with John Hegarty from BBH, and he made us one called We Have a Plan, which was great. And then the next year, we did, remade the Spice Girls. That was the biggest hit we had that year uh, virally. Um, and then last year, we because we were doing healthy, not hungry theme, we uh, had, I thought, the rather good idea of pastiching the Hunger Games to say, let's end hunger, no more games. The mistake we made was not asking uh, Lionsgate in advance, would they mind? And the World Food Programme, who we work with, said, oh, I think that'd be cool because they're really supportive about hunger. They've been really good to us. And we were working like crazy speed so sort of didn't we wrote to them I didn't hear back made it anyway and that was on my summer holiday about a week before it was due to kind of break in cinemas and I got a, uh, someone infamous who I wouldn't say so I can't rang me up and said you're about to get a cease and desist letter from Lionsgate I think um, I think you should desist I was like oh shit that was awful it was really awful totally ruined my family holiday well so you had to like just pan the whole thing yeah Oh, God. Wow. It was awful. And, and we had a really good, a lovely, lovely lady had, had put the money up from a corporate and she was amazing about it. And she oh, said, wow. these things happen, don't worry about it. Okay, that's Please nice. Don't worry about it. Please don't make us give you the money back. What's the most moving? Personally, was watching Beyonce do that feminist set. The most moving all the time are the, uh, when we get the kids sending stuff back from World's Largest Lesson. That's, a, that's, that's pretty cool. Mm. I mean, you know, last year's Goalkeepers event, seeing Obama talk and, um, and say things like, you're all goalkeepers here. You know, that, that's kind of moving. And then looking back and seeing all of my team up along the balcony... I mean, like going just like going down in bits, you know, because I think they're so exhausted from the effort of pulling that off. Um, and then it, it went so well. That was really personally, as a founder, that was really moving to see a kind of something you've been working towards come off so well. And that, where do you think the future is going to go for Project Everyone? Are you going to do this for the rest of your life now? Well, it's an interesting challenge. Kate and I have always said, let's do it till 2020 us as the full-on drivers of it. Um, and then I think what our plans, and 2020 is a great year of reckoning. It's the Olympic year. We're working with the Olympics to work out how do you make it the first sustainable Olympics um, in terms of goals. And then I think we'd like to become sort of chairman types of it and hand it over to the new guard because there comes a point when we'll have pulled all our strings like what we what we do relies so heavily on who you can pull in and what tricks you can pull and who do you know there's got to be a point that you know we've done it we've used it all up <laughs> we do what we don't want to be is drifting around the sort of un system game we were important once <laughs> so i think um the idea is to succession plan and we've got an amazing team the team at project everyone are just fantastic every every single person is extraordinary human being um so what that's sort of the plan where when we get to it we'll, we'll, how could we bear it I don't know but that's that's sort of the plan and then I'd like to work maybe in some specific areas like I'm very passionate about the ocean goal like I was talking about last night um, I'd like to work with other organisations who want to do more with the goals but so, for, but what is really nice actually is for now to be totally locked into something with with joy in my heart every day, is is a great feeling, and it's been like that from the beginning. Mm. So it's it's it, it's going to be an amazing. It's going to have been an amazing six years, and then if we carry it on, amazing, and if we don't, really positive legacy. This last section is all about the ups and downs, lessons and failures and finding balance along the way and generously sponsored by Calm.com, the meditation um, app, which you're a new user of, I suppose. Certainly am. Fantastic. Well, do you meditate yet? Well, no, I don't meditate. I do yoga a lot and um, I try and be mindful. I haven't mastered. I'm such a busy head person. 
I haven't yet mastered the art of literally sitting and doing nothing apart from thinking. But it's, it's uh, I, I admire it very much. I'd like to be. What do you do to find calm in your life? Run, yoga, swim. Do you think it's important to just zone out? Really important. I, and I think increasingly we're learning more about the science behind quite how important that is. But yes, I've always found that. Who's the calmest person you know? My son, my 10-year-old. Wow. Very calm. That's amazing. Yeah. Not taking after you then, is he? He's not taking off to me at all. <laughs> what was the toughest moment in your professional life? You know, was it at the at, at Project Everyone? Was it the BBC? Was it a Fallon, like trying to be a CEO? I think something stand out. Uh, yeah, I think Fallon definitely. Coming back, having a, my, my daughter and having to interrupt maternity leave ridiculously early because Nokia had um, pulled everything was was really stressful and actually I don't do regrets at all but I'm annoyed I'm, an, I'm annoyed that that had to happen in my life because it was it could have been a beautiful time with a new baby and I was actually complete I was everything I never wanted to be a stressed out working kind of you know practically breastfeeding on one side and texting on the other it was like a nightmare What's nightmare what is the most cutting and negative feedback you've ever had and how did you take it and did you like what was what was your reaction to that well, that is on the global goals because it's so funny because I'm, I'm generally I pride myself on being extremely self-deprecating and, and humble and I don't mind what people think about me but somebody said at the Gates Foundation I was reported back to me well she's not very strategic and I was livid furious what do you do about it Spent bought glasses, spent my life, spent, spent the next few months wafting around reading copies of you know, <laughs> Strategy for Harvard dummies. Business Review. <laughs> <laughs> and then I figured, let it go, it doesn't matter. So what are you going to say to that person now? Are you strategic? He doesn't work there anymore. Hey. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, you outmanoeuvred that guy. Yeah. Um, well, on the flip side, what's the most uplifting memory you've got from your career? I mean, I feel so lucky that I couldn't even begin to prioritise. But I mean, standing on that stage in Glastonbury was pretty amazing. Uh, there's been several stage moments through Radio One. Um, Fallon was uh, just being with like successive Christmas parties where I introduced the concept of fancy dress. And every time we sort of bulked, thinking like, oh, God, this is going to be really awkward. And, and then every time everybody's throwing themselves into it. That was that was really uplifting. But the goals, I mean, every time I've been to the UN and the UNGA first time up the mountain at Davos you know standing on stage at Cannes and introducing the Spice Girls film all those just hard, they just keep coming I feel really lucky do you or have you had any mentors millions of them oh, she yeah? said I mean I'm exaggerating I love a mentor okay so yeah. who, who's who going to give a shout out to Amanda McKenzie, uh, who she's from uh, she Aviva. is now. Well, she was Aviva. She's now business in the community. She was one of my first bosses in advertising. Um, and she joined us at the Goals campaign. She was our sort of grown up in, in residence for two years. Uh, amazing mentor. Sherilyn Shackle, who founded the Marketing Academy, uh, fantastic mentor. Andy Parfit from Radio One, uh, my controller in chief at the time, and just a great, great colleague and friend. Um, I mean, God, I don't know where to stop. Richard so now, think, so many. Yeah, so you think having mentors and coaches is an essential part of success? Really essential. I don't know where I would have been. I've always got two or three coaches on the go. Coming right towards the end now, because. You're a busy lady. Gotta You've run. got a world to go and save. Gotta run. Describe yourself. What, like five foot eight and I don't. brown hair? <laughs> You're looking at me. That's Brilliant. a weird question. Next. I know, but it's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard thing for someone yeah. to do. Oh, I think I'm an optimist. Um, good fun. I, I, I hope for the best. Um, I'll try anything. Um, believer in people. Believer in humanity. Believer in possibility. Lover of children. What is Especially the- my own. Best, especially your own, obviously, priorities. What's the best advice you've ever received? 
who sort of quite prosaically, Andy Duncan, who was my boss at the BBC and went off to run Camelot after that, he, when I saw him in one of these gaps, he said, make sure what you do next is, is international, which I'd never done before. Um, um, my husband gave I woke up one morning when I was doing Jamie Oliver and the Global Goals for 18 months, which was just two jobs. I mean, it's just one job too many. And my husband said, why do you have two jobs? You don't, you don't have to do that. And that was fucking good advice because I was like, yeah, I don't. I'll stop doing one of them. What, what's the best advice you could give our listeners? It's um, not, it's not do something international. So, <laughs> um, just make sure you're looking after yourself. You know, when you're when you're pursuing these great uh, these great businesses and these great dreams, make sure it's not coming at the cost of something that you might regret. And just make sure you're always giving a little bit more of a shit than you think you are about the rest of the world, the people around you, the world, whatever bit it is. Just give that little bit more of a shit and do something, whatever that is in your business. Change a business model or donate or act or whatever it is. Just we all need to do like a little bit more. OK, so final question. You used to own the Airways of Radio 1, so let's pretend you do again. You have one minute to own every single radio station transmission in the world. What message are you going to put out? What's your one big message if every ear could hear it? No pressure. That is an immense question. Well, I would talk from a goals perspective. I would say there is a plan in place that will make the world better and uh, significantly better for everybody on it. So I would encourage everybody around the world to look up that plan, look up globalgoals.org, spend some time with the goals, have a real think about what it is you could do in any one of those goals to to make a difference. Never believe you can't make a difference because everybody can make some sort of positive impact on the people in the world around them um, and love each other just a little bit more. It's a beautiful 60 seconds. Thank you very much for your time, Gail. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. One of the reasons we succeeded in the early days, despite being first-time founders, is we just used up everything we had. And that came to a head in an investor board meeting where I said I was going to do something and I just hadn't done it. There was this one chat where we were trying to figure out what my role going forward would be. And Ian, who is my best mate, just stopped me and was just like, you don't have to be at this company anymore. And I was like, oh, all right, maybe I should leave. And it was the, absolutely the right call. That was Pete Finlay, known to many as Pete Smith of Songkick and Silicon Milk Roundabout. Songkick is known around the globe as the world's largest concert discovery service. He is one of the pioneers of the London tech scene. If you want a real insight into what it's like building a company that's growing too fast for your own comfort and the tough challenges, imposter syndrome and insecurities that develop throughout this whole process, then Pete's brutally honest take next week on how he handled this hypergrowth is a story you need to hear. So tune in or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. 
Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.